John Liotti is the co-founder and CEO of AbleWorks, a nonprofit development organization in East Palo Alto focusing on equipping individuals with financial education and life skills that enable them to live free from oppression and poverty. While John and I have known each other for a little while, this was actually the first time I got the privilege to sit down and talk to him about his story, his faith journey, and the work that he has been engaged in for decades. I am very excited for you all to hear our conversation, uh, because not only will you get to know John and AbleWorks more, but you'll get some incredible insights into effective practices for doing justice work in a complex world. We talk about short-term missions trips, toxic charity, living in the tension, and the unknown future of a rapidly changing economic landscape. There's tremendous amount of economic upheaval in our area, as many of you know, and this poses some real challenges for an organization that is focused on economics as an avenue for justice work. John also shares some personal experiences with the tensions and rewards of integrity in running an organization. And from a faith perspective, you'll be inspired and perhaps provoked in a good way to seriously reconsider the prophets and the Sermon on the Mount of the Jesus tradition as central to the identity of being a Christian. You can learn more about AbleWorks at able.is, that's A-B-L-E dot I-S, and there are, of course, multiple ways in which you can get involved and participate in their work. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with John, and I know you will too. So, without further ado, here is John Liotti, co-founder and CEO of AbleWorks. John, thanks for meeting with me. Yeah, it's great. I really, I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's fun to uh, hang out this way since we've known each other sort of tangentially <laughs> for lots of years. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd like to start with just understanding a little bit of your spiritual journey, your heritage, your growing up. Um, this organization that you run, at least from everything that I've seen and the, especially the events that I've attended, are it's really incredible what what you're doing. All the beauty of it with all the challenges, right? All of that together mm-hmm. is really a wonderful and beautiful thing. So I'm just kind of curious, where did all this get started for you? All the way back to maybe your spiritual and um, religious history and growing up. Yeah. Um, so I was born in New Jersey and then raised in Florida. Um, my folks, uh, my dad's a, a lay pastor, and he, mm. uh, he came to Christ through um, this movement in the 1960s and 70s called the Jesus Movement. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so kind of our spiritual genesis was there, although he was actually Catholic charismatic. So back during that time, a group of charismatics started to exercise more of the Pentecostal gifts. Oh, wow. And he, uh, he got real attached to that movement um, and was a leader in, in locally in that, uh, that movement in, in Central Florida. And then eventually spun out and uh, started his own church and, and went from there. So, you know, a lot of my early spiritual journey was, uh, was clearly influenced and attached to my, to my folks. Mm, mm. Uh, and in high school, I... Um, my, you know, my parents rightfully knew that I needed to get into some relationships with some other folks. So they uh, encouraged me to go to a, a local youth group at an Assembly of God church. Mm. So I spent um, junior high and high school and going to an Assembly of God youth group and, you know, kind of coming up around that. And then uh, right out of high school, I went into a, a large parachurch organization called uh, Youth with a Mission or YWAM. Yeah. Mm. And spent about seven years in YWAM. Um, and, and then in the mid nineties, we landed in the central Valley. My wife and I got married, um, in 88, we met in YWAM wow. and, uh, she's from the central Valley 
and then 2000 moved over here. But sort of the subtext of all that is, you know, growing up as a sort of Catholic slash Pentecostal kid, um, especially in those times, uh, theologically, you know, it was really focused on the, the outward focus, focus power gifts and the inward focus salvation experience, mm. uh, social justice or any kind of justice issues weren't even part of the equation. Wow. So we landed, um, with YWAM in, um, in Northern Mexico and helped them pioneer a ministry location up there and started working with, um, immigrants and street kids. And we took in four street kids. We were in our early twenties. Um, and during our four years in Mexico, um, I, I encountered poverty in a whole different way Mm. and it really, um, facilitated a kind of a spiritual crisis for my wife and I, for lots of reasons. We were burned out physically just from the work we were doing. Um, but also, um, we couldn't quite reconcile the abject and desperate poverty that we saw both with the people we were living with and the people we were serving. Um, and the gospel that we were preaching, which was primarily focused on salvation mm. and not um, not anything related to um, solving the problems that were driving people into poverty mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So uh, after four years, we just burned out. I went back to the Central Valley and um, not really knowing, now we were probably 27 at the time, not really knowing what was next. Mm. Um, and even if we were going to still continue to follow um, follow Christ. Wow. So yeah. thankfully at that time, through relationships, um, there were kind of two groups that I got introduced to. One was um, the Urban Youth Workers Institute, which is uh, started by a friend of mine named Larry Acosta. Um, yeah. And yeah. Through, through that, I got introduced to uh, the Christian Community Development Association founded by Dr. John Perkins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of opened up a whole new conversation for us around um, a Christ-centered justice focus, Mm. which, you know, (laughs) growing up like we did, um, you know, my folks viewed Martin Luther King as a communist. Um, and, um, and this, and anything social gospel ish was, um, was anathema to, uh, you know, to the real gospel. So, you know, John, Dr. Perkins really brought in, you know, still a centrality of uh, the word of God and the gospel, but also this deep connection to the community and a deep sense of, of justice. That's, so, in, that's incredible. A lot of people, at least currently, who are going through either an awakening or a crisis, as you mentioned, are calling that a deconstruction. Would you describe it in that way, where the things that you once held on to no longer meant the same thing and had to be replaced or re? It's funny. Um, how, how would you describe? Well, that? I, you know, now I would describe it uh, as a um, a deconstruction of evangelicalism. Mm. Um, you know, throughout, um, even since then, you know, I've studied a lot of, um, Gustavo Gutierrez and a lot of the, um, liberation theology of the Catholic church, which is my early tradition and, uh, and which was really thought of as radical in the eighties. But, um, what I'm, what I'm seeing is, is that through Catholic social teaching, you know, the Catholic church really has never let go of the justice issue. They really had much more of a, of a sense of it. So, so yeah, my evangelicalism has, and my Pentecostalism has been certainly deconstructed, but, but my Catholicism um, has been bolstered by uh, by even Pope Francis and by Catholic social teaching. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Okay, so you have this awakening mm-hmm. or this new development, John Perkins, CCDA. Right. Um, and I heard you mention that you were in your 20s when you were in Mexico. Did you just completely skip college or was that? That's a great question. So um, I went through schooling with... Uh, 
with YWAM. I got out. I skipped college. And then Fuller let me in on life experience. So I ended up getting a master's degree from Fuller in yeah. intercultural studies. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well so, done. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a kind of a twofer. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you have this experience. You're now where? And what's the next steps that lead you? Well, about the same time I landed in uh, here in East Palo Alto, um, Andy Hartwell at, at Bayshore Christian Ministries mm-hmm. hired me. And it really took a chance on me because I still was a little bit of, uh, and I still am, I guess, uh, you know, a bit of a wild hair and, mm-hmm. um, and really rough around the edges. So, and, you know, I pre- always appreciate Andy for... Um, <laughs> for taking a chance and putting up with me even at that point I was in my early thirties. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and landed here in East Palo Alto and East Palo Alto really helped form me even further. You know, it really uh, refined my thinking around, um, around, you know, African-American theology, black the black power movement and the importance of that. And, you know, cause there's a lot of those roots here in, in EPA. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, our experience and my wife is Mexican. So our experience, my experience has really been around, around Latino empowerment, but really, you know, it was really filled out even further by, by what I learned here in East Palo Alto and learning from the, from the established leaders here. Wow. I'm curious to know a little bit more of, of the, I guess, of the theology that you grew up under mm-hmm. and it, what have you held on to throughout all of this that is still informative or still crucial, critical to the work that you're doing now? Well, I, I, I still have a thick ecclesiology. Hmm. You know, I, I believe that the church, the big C church, is is the answer to the world's problems, mm. and um, so I still I still hold on to that the call the call of the church and through the gospel. Um, I still believe deeply in Christ crucified. That Christ, um, his his incarnation and his death um, is salvation. Mm. Um, and I've grown in, in a deeper respect for um, the church universal, especially the global global South mm. church, um, and also the in church history, especially you know the church fathers and mothers, um, and uh, you know through Saint Francis and you know into uh, into Dorothy Day and and you know some of the more modern stuff too. So uh, you know I still hold on to that. I'm still an or- I still call myself an Orthodox, not in a sense of Eastern Orthodox, but an mm. Orthodox Christian. I think. Mm. Um, I struggle to call myself evangelical anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're, I think you're in good company. <laughs> so, um, okay. Tell us about then after Bayshore or through Bayshore, mm-hmm. the development of Able Works. How did that come about? So, you know, and I got to say, there's a bit of a tension here too, because of, um, you know, I was being, uh, being sort of discipled by Dr. Perkins and CCDA, um, you know, which has a very, um, which has a very neighborhood focused, orthopraxy, I guess is the right way to say it. Um, That doesn't work here in the Bay Area anymore. And that that sort of flows into sort of able works and what we're doing. I mean, Mm. because of, you know, the hyper gentrification we're experiencing here, it really is at conflict at times with some of my, my CCD philosophy, which is really neighbor centered and Mm. neighborhood centered and street centered. So, you know, through my time at BCM, uh, you know, my respect for, and and BCM was deeply influenced also by, um, by, by Dr. Perkins and by CCDA. Um, and Andy really helped even further refine uh, some of my um, my approaches to that. But you know, at the time we started looking at East Palo Alto and and um, in this community specifically, and you know, two and a half square miles um, with you know a couple hundred nonprofits, literally, um, yeah. and uh, and endemic and and generational poverty still still exists, uh, and just in despite of or in spite of uh, the great work that's here. So. Uh, 
we, <laughs> we really wanted to do something um, focused because I didn't see anything at the time really focused specifically on, on economics. Um, and, and we wanted to be a little more preventative instead of reactive in, in the approach. So, you know, certainly there were groups like, like BCM that was doing and others doing, um, educational stuff, but nothing really focused on economic justice. Yeah. So, uh, that's primarily why we launched AbleWorks. Um, and we did work early on with the credit union project here in East Palo Alto, um, and then moved on to, uh, to our other programs. So that to me, I think is one of the most fascinating things as I was reading more about kind of your history and the focus, um, it, there are uh, kind of efforts of charity where that's a really important thing. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of Christians have a mindset that, you know, we have, there, there's these poor people and we need to come in and we help them. And your philosophy seems to be so not antithetical, but a very strategic distinction from like charity work. It's really focused on economics. And I, I would really love to hear you talk a little bit more about the role or the tension between those two. I read many years ago, Toxic Charity by Robert Lupton. And um, of course, awakened my mind to, oh my goodness, all these things that I had grown up under, and these are good things, and you should give, and you should be, you know, benevolent and and kind and and generous and all those kinds of things um, may actually be, you know, creating more harm than creating more good. And yet at the same time, I still feel like there's still a place for that. So I'm really curious to hear your perspective, given all of the focus on economics, um, focus on development, and the tension between those two, kind of (laughs) maybe a very brutal assessment of what is good, what is actually effective, what is dignifying, um, all of that stuff. You know, it's funny. Yeah, I obviously a lot of my a lot of our influence was Bob Lupton. um, And uh, I had the honor of serving with him on the CCA board for a lot of years. Um, but also, you know, the, when helping hurts and some of the other books right. that are out there and <laughs> there's a little bit of a tension there too, that I found and, and <laughs> I've, I've often found that, that the wealthy, um, use those books as an excuse not to give. Mm. And, and, and oh, wow. in yeah. essence, I almost feel like they've taken that, um, to the extreme and have held back, uh, their generosity. Wow. So I think there's a little bit of a caution that we have to have there that even w- w- in situations where we want to give well and give smartly and give in ways that breaks, um, really breaks the back of poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, uh, we still have to love the poor and have mercy. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, bringing mercy back into the equation is, uh, is important. I mean, sometimes, sometimes you got to give the guy in the street five bucks. He may go buy, uh, you know, you may go buy some rum with that. Um, but sometimes we just give and we right. just give because God blessed us and we, you know, we give well, but I agree. Um, you know, we look at situations, uh, where, um, where giving has been, um, either for the primary benefit of the giver. Um, you know, I want to go give this at Christmas to make myself feel better because right. I'm going to buy, you know, thousands of dollars for my, for my family. Right. Um, or, um, or it's been to a swash guilt at some level. So, um, you know, Bob, uh, what I love about what Bob what Lupton says is, um, you know, there are chronic needs and there are crisis needs. Mm. And um, and you, we cannot use, you know, crisis approaches to chronic needs. Mm. So what AbleWorks has really tried to do from the start is really look at, um, it, it's really built on a couple things. So number one, I believe that all the resources and all the intelligence and all the greatness already exists in the community long before I ever showed up. Right. 
So it's not about me and it's not about anything that John does or AbleWorks does. Um, we have a role to play that God, you know, I believe God has given us to play. But the role is to really come alongside of the great talents and assets that already exist yeah. in the community. And our role is to, um, to help uh, come alongside of what, what the Lord is already doing in the community and in the people. So, and I think that's, that's probably the one big thing that AbleWorks is really founded on is the fact that, um, that you know, our role is about empowerment and about uh, support and, and about bringing our resources to bear so that greatness can, um, can emerge. Right. And, and I'm, I'm trying to be really careful on how I say this because, uh, you know, so much of the language falls back into Messiah language. Right. And um, we are not Messiahs. And, um, and if we don't do the work, somebody else will come in and do the work in itself. And, um, but, um, but I do really feel like we have, we have something to offer. Right. And, um, and the one thing we do have to offer is the ability to bridge resources between communities. Wow. When you talked about the $5, I remember when I was very first a young Christian learning how to be generous and kind, and I, I gave $5 to somebody <laughs> who was on the street begging, and I remember walking, watching that person walk around the corner and basically run away. He, he, he said he needed $5 for gas or whatever it was. Um, and I remember in my heart at that particular moment, I must have been like 18 or 19 or something like that, uh, feeling this surge of cynicism. Right. right. Um, and... I love your articulation that there seems to be this um, either on one side a cynicism towards that, and I never thought about the the implications of reading when helping hurts and and what that would do to you psychologically and and how you would approach these issues, and then the messiah complex on the other side, and how how you how you stay how do you stay immune? Um, I heard you mention at your catalyst talk that you have to remind yourself of the work that you're doing as well, making sure that you don't, um, whatever biases or judgments that you have about the poor, even after all these years, you know, that's still something that you're managing or still something that's, you know, it surrounds us or it's just a part of who we are, I suppose, you know, our own humanness. And I would be curious how you manage the tension between those two, because I have a feeling for those of us who are much less involved and much less engaged as you are, it's very easy for us to swing from cynicism to messiahship or back the other way. And you've seemed to have a spiritual or emotional discipline to maintain a really appropriate balance. And maybe balance isn't even the right word. And I'd be curious to hear how you how you manage that so that the work can continue forward with the full effectiveness and dignity that it requires. I think um I appreciate you saying that. I don't, I don't know that I've reached the balance or, or any sense of like, you know what? I think we too often fall into the danger of dualistic, of dualistic thinking Mm -hmm. where, where the older I get and the the more I realize that everything is about a continuum um, and it's about a tension. Um, And sometimes I end up on the right side of the tension and sometimes I end up on the wrong side of the tension, the things that I'm, that I'm working to do. And this could be, you know, even while you're, while you're asking the question, I was thinking about uh, race issues. I was thinking about uh, short-term missions issues. I was thinking about uh, you know how we give how we give and engage with uh, with the poor, and all these things. You know, a friend of mine just wrote a book. Uh, in fact, she's her name is Michelle Warren, and she's going to be um, doing some stuff here in the Bay Area in in, uh, in March, April, on uh, proximity. And one of the one of the tenets of CCDA is that uh, the way to really sort of be successful in this work is by being in relationship with 
the poor and being in relationship with the oppressed. And for us who are from uh, more, the more dominant culture is to intentionally submit ourselves to people of color and to come under their leadership and allow them to speak into our lives. And I've got, I mean, there are a number of African-American and Latino and Asian brothers and sisters who, um, who have put up with my ignorance and my bias and my racism and have called me to account in love and in grace. And I can, I can name 10 people right now that, um, that I, I wouldn't even be sitting here talking to you if it wasn't for their uh, in, influence in my life. And they're the ones that help me stay on track and keep, uh, keep the work uh, faithful and keep the work effective. So I don't know if that completely answered the question, but I think because this is more art than science. I mean, I think about the tension around short-term missions right now. Here's the tension. Short-term missions, I mean, one of the reasons we left Mexico was we saw the fallacy and the challenge of short-term missions and what it was doing to Mexico. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is I wouldn't be sitting here today doing this work if it wasn't for short-term missions. So how do we deal with that tension right there? Right. We've got to expose people to uh, the world and to the needs that are out there. And, and Christians do have this mission, this call to mission. But at the other hand, as soon as it becomes about us and not about where we're going, then it becomes faulty and, and flawed. So living in that, learning to live, I think, in that tension is is part of the challenge that I, that we're doing. That feels so disappointing to me. <laughs> I, I feel like, because what you said is just so true yeah. with every aspect of good work. Um, I think of, for example, uh, large churches that give literally millions of dollars mm-hmm. towards wonderful work. But in order to give those millions of dollars, they have to spend $50 million on the building right. and the lights and the sound system to you know gather the people, right? It's just like, it feels as if the only way through, and maybe this is a, my, my question for you, is the only way through to the work that is most efficacious through a work that is flawed? Is that the only way, like you mentioned the short-term missions thing too, you know, I I had a similar experience, you know, going to Mexico, building houses was a really wonderfully eye-opening experience for me. And, and yet at the same time feeling, did I really actually help people? But the only way that I could get that experience and to read the books that I'm reading and to engage in a different way was through that experience is is that is, is this the only way i you know i don't know i mean I, I this is exactly where i think all the time it's like i i don't know i mean i know that i know that at the end of the day i'm just trying to be faithful mm. and open mm. and i'm trying to um allow the refining word of god through the church and through my brothers and sisters and through the word of, and through the bible to to continue to refine and amplify the works that i'm doing but at the end of the day i also realize that it's nothing but raw faithfulness and that all of it's done mm-hmm. and and ultimately you know my life's about whether or not my family loves me and i've tried to be a good man and i've influenced a few people around me it's not the significant thing that i thought it was going to be but it's but it's uh, but it's also really significant mm-hmm. and it's I just, I'm learning about that tension. It's, it's, it's funny. I think, you know, when we look at like theology, you know, we, we tend to approach it from, or I'll, I'll say myself, I tend to approach it from a, from a, from a Greek logical perspective when the Bible was written in a Hebraic tone, which is like all about the tension, right. you know, the, the, the Hebrews hold, you know, free will and predestination in equal tension right. and truth is in the middle of those two. And I kind of think in this regard, what we're talking about truth is in the middle of that. It's mm. about, you know, the resourced going and serving and it's about, it's about all this tension and God is in the middle of it somehow. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> is Able Works a faith-based organization like publicly? 
No, we're, well, we're not a religious. We're a faith-based charitable. Faith-based charitable. How, how would you distinguish like a religious organization from a faith-based charitable organization? Well, it's actually a distinction by the IRS. And how? So educate so one is, me, I suppose. How, yeah, how do they? Uh, a uh, a religious organization can either be a church or a parachurch organization, and it and it is allowed to do sacramental mm, work. Okay. Um, where a, a charitable can be if well, according to our attorneys, <laughs> can be a faith based charitable, but we our mission really is not about proselytizing. Right. Okay. Um, how then do you manage? I mean. Ultimately, we're talking about faith. I mean, the tension lands us in the place of just trusting that we're going to be faithful right. with every single step of the way with, with what God has placed uh, in front of us at that particular moment. How, um, how does faith work in Able Works for you and for the organization then that you develop? Yeah, it's funny. I think sometimes I do, I, I, th- I think we're doing the right thing when we're too faith based for some folks and we're not faith based enough for others. So I, I think we're hopefully we're trying to find a sweet spot. The sweet spot is when nobody's happy. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's that tension. Yeah, exactly. So what I, what I tend to say is the work that we do is wholly informed by the scriptural call to justice. Mm. And the work that we do is salvif- salvific, if that's the right word, mm-hmm. in, in, the sen- in the holistic sense of uh, the call of the church to, to be the redeem- redemption of the world mm-hmm. as we wait for the return of Jesus. Do you still, uh, and I, I yeah. say still because I'm sure this is true, do you still have critics knocking down your door about what you just said, that the gospel oh. is justice? And, and So do you still have those critics, and how do you manage that criticism? Yeah, I often have those critics, and, and it's hard. You know, sometimes it's some uh, at times, sometimes some of our donors. Um, well, oh, that's a whole other level, right? It really is. When when they, when people who have very different theological views, philosophical views, are donating to your organization, that's a whole other level of tension management that you have to. to yeah, navigate. I I think we, I mean what we've tried to do is really have. Um, know and understand our values, our core values, and do our best to um, to stay true to those mm-hmm. uh, and not compromise uh, on anything. So I, you know, often, I mean, I recently had an issue where a donor was uncomfortable with uh, our stand on immigration. Right. Um, and that's, uh, we, we're an organization serving immigrants. So why would we not want to advocate for immigrant rights? I mean, it's just so, you know, I love them dearly. They're They're good friends of ours too. And it's like, I'm sorry, we're just gonna have to disagree. And and if you can't give because we are pushing for the dreamers uh, and for something for you know for justice for dreamers, then I, I just I'm sorry. You know, we're just gonna yeah. disagree. And it's kind of it's hard maintaining that organizational integrity is tough. Is really tough. I mean, you are going to be tempted so many times. I can imagine just financially, like especially if it's a big donor, right? Um, and the event that you did recently was just so wonderful. Um, I actually bought the movie documented. We're going to do a film screening oh, that's great. Uh, for our church and for the synagogue where we meet. And uh, we actually have a dreamer that came to the event and he showed up at Spark because one oh, of our people invited him and said, well, here's a, here is a faith-based community that is willing to have a conversation. Welcome you. Um, so we're going to try to get in contact with him. The other thing that comes to mind when you say that is I feel as if Shouldn't you know, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Donor, that this is who we are? So it seems like a natural outplay. And do you have any compulsion within you to try to maintain relationships for the purpose of either persuasion or for the purpose of compromise or the purpose of having some sort of common ground with those? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, AbleWorks really has three programs. We have our Future Profits program that that serves uh, high school students um, teaching financial literacy and life skills and decision-making skills throughout the region. Uh, We have our Livable program that serves single mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, And our third program really is our forum program, but it's really more expanded to that is is I've really, and I've really taken this on as, I really do believe it's my role and responsibility to engage with my evangelical brothers and sisters wow. um, in talking about these things. It's partly why I did my concentration in my, in my master's degree on the Christian ethics, because I think that really comes into play here. And really asking the question about what is the role of the church in society, in a democratic society specifically. Yeah. Uh, because the role of the church would be different in a more oppressive society where you don't have you know, the ability to vote. So you know, I really see our role, AbleWorks' role, really to help shepherd Christians into these conversations and into these tensions and create space for, you know, for dialogue. What are some key, I don't want to use that word strategies because that, that sounds too pretentious, I guess, but key lessons that you've learned about that persuasion, about that helping evangelicals understand that there's a broader way in which their theology can be expressed. There's a broader way in which they can understand the movement of Jesus and kingdom ethics and what are some things that you've learned about doing that? Well, it's funny. I mean, the one thing I've learned, <laughs> we're all learning right now, is that it's such a contentious time that, you know, the first thing we've got to help people do is to not take their theology or their politics from Facebook uh, or from Twitter. And that's, I don't know how we're going to do that, but that's really... That's, that's an insurmountable <laughs> challenge right there, John. <laughs> but I know it is, but that's the... Cult. I mean, I, when I talk to believers, it's like, no, you know, you've, we've got to sort of come back to the Word of God. Wow. And, and, you know, I love the Sermon on the Mount. And Glenn Stassen, uh, you know, one of the preeminent ethicists, Christian ethicists, yep. really uses the Sermon on the Mount yep. as, you know, as part of the paradigm of how to engage in the world. And, I, and so my conversation with Christians really is, let's come back to the gospel and the prophets and I mean the whole word specifically, but really those two pieces, mm-hmm. um, and and look at each ethical dilemma that we face in light of the call of the gospel mm. uh, and the word and the and and the rebuke of the prophets. Mm. So, and realize sort of who we are in that context. I mean, we and anybody in the U.S. is part of the one percent. So let's not let's not kid ourselves. Um, you know, I wouldn't consider myself as a one percenter, but I am in the in world mm. context. So therefore, you know, the call of uh, the, the critique of the wealthy Jewish leaders in Israel that, that the prophets had done is, is the critique of me Mm. um, and the critique of our church. So I think we've got to sort of realistically figure, understand who we are uh, and, and repent and lament and then move forward from there, you know, reading scripture through the eyes of the oppressed. So, and that really goes back to, what I was talking about before is that when I'm, when I'm in relationship with Latino and African-American and Asian brothers and sisters from the global South, they really help refine my theology. So I'm reading and looking at scripture through their eyes. Um, if I'm only reading and understanding it through European, Western, white men, uh, then my, my, my view of theology is completely distorted. Yeah. So it's, it takes a lot of work. So, so I really see our role in NeighborWorks as part of this this role of discipleship, in essence, oh, um, and amazing. engaging with believers and helping them see, you know, justice as it relates to our mission clearly. It's funny, you know, I mentioned the one donor that was upset, but I've also had other donors on the other side. I had a foundation that came back to us and said, "You're way too Christian. We can't we can't support you anymore." Mm-hmm. And they actually came back around on the on the issue of immigration mm. because we found common ground on immigration mm. and uh and they they started supporting us again which we're super thankful of yeah. so it kind of comes both ways 
That was gold. That, <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, there's an organizational leadership organizational lesson there too. I mean, you, you maintain your core values. Don't be seduced by the, the money that happens to be just sitting right there because there's always somebody else who has those same core values as you right. that will come alongside and, and you don't want to ever compromise your integrity. On and that. I got to sleep at night. And you got to sleep. Yeah, exactly. You know, I just can't. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I've got, I've got to sort of finish this race, however it ends with the sense that I did my very best. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, okay. A couple more questions. Um, where is AbleWorks going? What's the that's future? That's a great question. We're in the middle of a strategic planning process uh, right now. I'll tell you what's driving it. You know, the East Palo Alto we started out in is not the East Palo Alto that's today. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just changed. And you know, we've got the reality of, you know, Facebook that's moved on to the corner of our, our community. We've got Facebook Village where they're going to build 5,000 homes in, in, you know, San Jose. We've got, um, you know, the Google development that's happening around downtown. I mean, it's just this region is changing. And the reality is, is that we're having a hard time finding pathways for the people that we serve because everything rises and falls on stable housing. Right. So if we can't find people with stable housing, they can't break cycles of poverty or can't find, you know, find a way forward. The challenge for us is that, I mean, we did a research project a couple of years ago with a group out of the Stanford D school, um, the Stanford design school that really where we identified career pathways. I mean, there is, there are jobs in this region. I mean, amazing jobs where people can really find a way without a college degree up into middle-class and upper-middle-class, you know, career paths. But the problem is, is that, even at that level, even at seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year, you can't rent a place to live here. I mean, I mean, half the people listening to this understand that. So we're trying to grapple with the reality of that and what AbleWorks' role, and the reality of the fact that most of the folks that we know that are leaving East Palo Alto and Redwood City, North Fair Oaks, and Mountain View, and these areas are moving to the Central Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, moving to Tracy and Stockton and Modesto and other places like that, where where they could still have a brutal, ugly commute, but they could still get back here to work. So. You know, we're we're really looking at uh, some of the outlying areas like the Central Valley and even down into Salinas and some of those areas as as a place to uh, begin serving because it's the reality. I, th- I think you know our board. I, I really appreciate our board because they've realized that failure to think deeply about this issue will ultimately doom you know the mission of the organization right. because I I don't think the community will be what it is now five to ten years from now. Wow, that's amazing. What gives you hope? in the midst of all of that that you just mentioned and hope in a general sense in the work that you're doing. <laughs> you know, hope is a big thing in this, uh, in this time right now. I mean, it's, uh, it is a crazy time politically and a crazy time economically. And, you know, you've got, you know, King Jong-un pointing missiles at, I mean, I, my hope <laughs> is in the church and the call of the gospel still. I'm hopeful that, I mean, I, I, there's so many scriptures. I think about the scripture when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of God will raise up a standard. Um, I think about the vitality of the church through difficult times throughout church history. I think about, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, some of the heroes of the faith that have gone before us and the way that they persevered through tough times and how beauty has emerged through ashes. So I, I am, I'm not without hope right now. I, I I believe that God has called us, and specifically in Silicon Valley, I believe that God has called people here for such a time as mm. this. We live, <laughs> we we live we live in the time that unless Jesus comes back, people will study a hundred years from now. Mm-hmm. We live in the time where 
all these great technologies have emerged all the everything from the internet to AI. We live in in London during the Industrial Revolution. We live in Rome during the Roman Empire. We live in New York during the 1940s. You know, so we we are in the center of it right now and I'm very hopeful that the Lord has placed all of us here including your church um, in this time for such a time as this. And I think our role really is to is to seek the Lord and find his hear his voice in this context for this time because uh, because this is where he's placed us. Oh. So that was actually my next question. What would you, if I gave you the pulpit for every church in the Bay Area? What would you say to them? When I when I look at our churches in our area, and that this goes from smaller churches up to some of the larger churches in our area, I'm I'm very impressed by the quality of thinkers that exist in our churches. Mm-hmm. And I would say leaders in the church have got to call their people to engage to engage in systemic structural issues in the region mm-hmm. and and move away from the simplistic acts of kindness. Not that those are bad. We already talked about that, but, but, um, I look at like housing and education and income disparity and immigrant, you know, all the things that we're really able works is really thinking about. And, and I believe that the expertise to really engage in those systems exists in our churches. Hmm. And my encouragement is for, for leaders in churches to release the power of the congregation and to encourage them to think about how to use their gifts and talents and abilities to really change the structures of, of bondage throughout our region. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Given that intellectualism, what are you reading? Uh, what would you recommend others read maybe top two or three books? Uh, Dominic Gilliard just wrote a book on, uh, incarceration, uh, mass incarceration. That's, that's everybody should read every, mm-hmm. every white person should read specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm reading a lot of African American and Latino authors right now. Um, there's a uh, there's a book called Dear White Christians that's written from a uh, from a more of a liberal church perspective, but that's really important. Um, Noel Castellanos wrote a book called Where the Cross Meets the Street, which is more of a contextualized theology of incarnation. Those are all big words, but it talks about how the church should really be engaging in the world. Mm. I, I think that's a really important book. Uh, John Perkins just wrote a book on the power of love, which I think is really. Mm. which is really apropos in this time. Um, and of course, you know, the new Jim Crow or the, and Ta-Nehisi Coates' work is phenomenal right now, and I think people should read that. I'm, I'm really looking at, I'm reading a lot of African-American authors right now um, just because trying to really understand the, my role as a white, middle-aged white man in this, uh, in this current uh, conversation. John, this is great. You're an inspiration. I bless God for you, the work that you're doing. I know our church has been so benefited, at least from the forum, um, and where I'm learning more and more about what AbleWorks is doing. So all I can say is just God bless you and your work, and may your tribe increase. Thank you, Pastor. Pastor.